Hello and welcome to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast produced by Tell Me Studios for Aleph Insights. In this series of podcasts, we take a look at interesting topics and discuss what we think they tell us about analysis and decision making. I'm Fraser McGrew and I'm here with Peter Coghill and Nick Hare of Aleph Insights. And this week we're discussing Naruto the Macaque and copyright. Peter, lead us in. So it's a, it's a fun story that was, has been going around for the last 12 months or so. A photographer, uh, David Slater, a Brit- British photographer, uh, w- wanted to highlight the plight of uh, the macaques, uh, this particular species of macaque, um, uh, as they would, their numbers were dwindling to a few hundred mating pairs. And so uh, he came up with a, a nice idea, which is quite fun, to, to, to encourage these animals to play with his camera in the hope that they would... Press a shutter with a, and, and take and sort of take an accidental selfie, which he which he achieved, uh, and uh, he published his his images and uh, a, a, one in particular went pretty viral. It went it, it was spread around social media, uh, and it, it it did its job. It, you know, got people sort of looking at looking at these animals and one and and sort of looking for ways to help them out in some way so yeah it, it worked but um it turns out sort of since then that poor david slater has struggled to earn any money at all from his uh, copyright from 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 his image that he made um and in fact is is thinking about giving up photography entirely because is the 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 process of all these court battles around this image have really put him off photography altogether i think he 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 wants to he wants to be a tennis coach instead. <laughs> so, so anyway, but the the yeah the, the so the, the legal battles is started when Wikipedia, um, uh, so usually on Wikipedia, put the image up in reference to either these these specific animals or this this or the the or the plight of them. Um, and uh, David Slater spotted it on Wikipedia and asked for them to take it down. Wikipedia refused, um, arguing that the the copyright actually belonged to the monkey and not to him. <laughs> Uh, I think he, he eventually won that 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 case, uh, but then the the, the 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 wider case was taken up by the the people for ethical treatment of animals, or known as PETA, uh, who sued him on behalf of the animal uh, for uh, ownership of the the ownership of the the uh, uh, the copyright, um, and I believe that case is has recently been heard and it was quashed uh, with lots of questions about. They couldn't really tell if it was the right animal or not, and all sorts of things. So, uh, and it was ruled that you know animals can't own copyright and things. So, uh, but all these things, all this has left poor old David out of out of pocket. Um, and uh, well, as a fellow, himself. as a fellow photographer, I sympathise with him. Um, okay, but Petter sued him, saying on the on the macaque's behalf, saying that the macaque should have copyright. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Because uh, usually copyright in photography resides. Uh, with the person who took the photograph, right? And in this case, it's the macaque. Yeah. Right, yes, indeed. So yeah, that, and that was a, that was the that that was the point of the case that you know he he, he engineered the situation, but it was actually the macaque that took the photograph. Okay, released the shutter to take the photograph. So this raises all sorts of interesting questions, um, especially relating to copyright and macaques. Um, but um, Nick, sort of take us on from there. I mean, um, where does this leave us with? I mean, I guess my question would be, who would ever have thought, you know, when copyright laws were first um, initiated or drawn up, that there would one day be a case of a macaque taking a photo of himself and, and you know, and calling on copyright law to sort that out? So tell us what's going on. 
Well, uh, <clears throat> I think we, we've, we have done a podcast before about intellectual property and the, the idea of, of copyright, uh, the reason it's the thing at all is that, um, it, is that the kinds of things you can copyright uh, have the characteristic that they're very cheap to reproduce. Right, so the problem problem is that th this then means uh, that they fall into a category of goods which are um, non-rivalrous and to an extent non-excludable. So non-rivalrous means that me consuming it doesn't stop you consuming it. Um, and then it's, coincidentally, they're also non-excludable, which means that it's, as it happens, very hard to control uh, who consumes things. So um, if you take, I mean, there are other, other examples of this uh, throughout the economics literature. So you have, uh, you know, a classic example of a non-rivalrous good being something like a street lamp, uh, where, you know, the fact that I get the benefit of the street lamp certainly doesn't stop anyone else from getting its benefit. Um, Non-excludable uh, goods include things like uh, fish, uh, you know, absent any any kind of seriously enforced international law about, about fishing. Um, you know, fish aren't, non-rivalrous if i eat a fish you can't eat it as well but it is very hard to stop people um fishing at, you know out at sea it's just very hard to prevent people from taking fish out of the sea um so so the the problem with goods that are uh non-rivalrous and non-excludable is that they they tend to they're called public goods and um they they tend to be underproduced that that's that's the problem so if, if uh, you know if we didn't have a government effectively providing street lighting there would be very little of it you know it, only people who really valued having a well-lit front of their house would put street lights up and so the the argument is that in those cases it, you you either have the government providing things now in this case obviously there's no argument for governments providing photos of macaques but the in in general we we can kind of substitute the fact that it's not excludable with technology so that process has occurred there's certainly lots of uh, technological precedents not least things like streaming tv services where you know in the in the past uh, we had to have tv licenses and if the you know the the, the channels that weren't funded through effectively uh, taxes uh, were funded through advertising because there was no way of charging people for receiving your TV channel. Now, with te with the technology we have, we can we can we can have it subscription based. So you you can sign up to uh, you know Netflix or whatever, and uh, Netflix can charge you, and only you can watch those films. So in a sense, here we we've got a choice really. Um, do we want do we want this to be a kind of good which is going to be non excludable, or do we want to make an effort to make this? An excludable kind of good now the, the argument for having it excludable is that that you know the usual ones that you hear so you know if you, if you can get the full economic benefit from your photograph um then uh you know you you will if you know if you're not able to charge people for looking at it or for or for sharing it uh then you don't get compensation for it and therefore you're not perhaps going to produce it in the first place you're going to be less likely to go to africa to take a photo of a macaque and the world will be worse off to the tune of photos of macaques likewise with music you know if you don't have a means of being able to charge people for it then it will be un underproduced that's that's the argument so um but on the other hand there there, there is also uh, an argument that if it if it really is sort of zero cost to produce then really the market will end up uh, putting zero value on those things so the idea being that you know if you if you can't use that particular photo of a macaque in theory 
somebody else will take a very similar photo of a macaque and you know in a, in a price war for macaque photos um because it's effectively zero to, to produce a new digital copy of a macaque photo uh you know they'll be bid down to zero anyway so um there is an argument that a copyright actually simply sort of imposes an artificial monopoly uh, on the producer which okay. may be inefficient because they may underproduce just just to widen it slightly further it also hints at important ethical questions about who who should have ownership and who should have the right to limit con- publication of li- a likeness of a person so you this hints at ethical questions around social media so if i publish photos of you fraser on my facebook feed um you you potentially quite in your right to say no i don't want those photos of me on on facebook so you, you facebook now provides you with a means of finding those photos and and having them removed so you so you so facebook has handed over some control over my my social media um, profile to you to other people but is, is it also not the case that facebook actually owns the photos you upload uh i pass <clears throat> i haven't yeah i I, I have a feeling that they effectively own that and so there was a controversy a few years ago when they were proposing using people's photos that they'd uploaded in you know their sort of marketing material and um if i think if you read the small print mm. that's they're completely within their rights to do that um and, and i think there was a similar controversy when people discovered that actually by deleting photos from their facebook feed it didn't delete it from facebook's uh data banks you know and so they, they yeah this i think this is obviously the reason that this is much more of a big deal today is because it's i mean in the old days you know as a photographer you would perhaps do a run of 500 photos and sell them and they'd be fit and you know it wouldn't be an issue because those things were rivalrous and excludable whereas now you can just create a new copy for for zero cost um and a photo can be you know halfway around the world before you know the copyright uh, copyright's got its boots on um and and so it's you know it's something that we're, we're obviously grappling with and and i you know there, there are argue, pretty good arguments on both sides really you know on one mm. hand that that copyright laws have not a you know technologically kind of redundant um they're just not you know they don't reflect the reality of of digital products um and you know you can see i mean that is that's something which um uh you know we sort of have to grapple with all the time about so things like you know the fact that someone's in a photo the fact that you might be able to take a photo and digitally manipulate it you know the fact what what is it that you've got a copyright over have you got a copyright over the over the um you know the 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 ones and zeros which are are the representation of that photo or have you only got a copyright over the um you know over the over the particular representation of that as a as a photo of a macaque you know if if you uh i mean in theory you could imagine someone writing a program which would generate every single possible um photo of a certain size and and then you know claiming claiming copyright over them all uh so you know it's these these technological possibilities make it uh make it much i mean we, we're gonna have to do a lot of thinking yeah. as a society to work out what actually you own um I have i'm reminded cons- of a i've considered uh a, a, a performance art piece where i take uh deliberately take copyrighted images that are not for reuse and certainly not for reuse in modification and modifying them in such a way that they're indistinguishable from the original and then publishing them yeah. <laughs> uh, so that there's no so that uh, and but being open about the fact that they are all images that are 
that are subject to copyright. But because no one can track down which ones they are, I'm sort of in the clear. In the well, yeah, there was zone. a similar issue with copyright, the idea of copywriting gene sequences, which I think um, either you could copyright them or, or trademark them. But, you know, so obviously firms, genetic modification firms, uh, spend a lot of money developing, you know, particular, you might, you know, particular resist particularly resistant crops or whatever uh and feel that they have a right to um you know to to, to that particular sequence and and that, that obviously is very controversial the idea of being able to copyright or trademark a particular gene sequence um but it's not that dissimilar really i mean it's just you know you write it down it's a string of letters um and i know i think someone did try to do that did sort of write in order for for public for the public benefit uh to to basically generate have a website which which reproduces every single possible sequence so that they can't so that they're all in the public domain um now, I think there was, there was a very interesting case years ago, back in the old analog days. I think it was Roger Moore, uh, but I'm not sh- I'm not totally sure uh, who had written some love letters to uh, a girlfriend, and and she wanted to reproduce them, and argued that she owned she owned them because Roger Moore had written the letters and given them to her. And the court uh, ended up ruling that yes, it was true that she owned the the pieces of paper and the ink. But he owned the words and the sequence that they were in, and so they couldn't. She didn't have the right to reproduce them in a newspaper. Um, yeah, it's a very interesting philosophical question. Well, so I mean, we we're actually close to sort of needing to be, to wrapping up actually. Um, but I want to ask, so well, what's the answer? But actually, I'm not even sure if I quite understand the question. Um, is it the case that we're saying copyright law is difficult to interpret now because stuff is so much easier to copy? Um, and to do it at sort of zero cost and so therefore uh, I mean what's the question what's the answer I'm lost well that, that's part of it but there's also a lot of a lot of novel works it's particular in sort of social media and uh, even in software programming and stuff is is derived from other work so um, it's uh, it's very common to take it take an image and manipulated in some way to make something new you know, in, this, in a really crude case you might be just putting some block capital letters to create a meme of a, with a using a, a funny picture of a cat or something uh, but in software a lot of software is built uh st- standing on the shoulders of what's come before mm-hmm. um now in software that the, that that the need for this to to enable this kind of working has brought about uh various open copyright systems so there's uh there's there's a gnu uh there's um there's uh, copy left all the very various different flavors which actually encourage reuse of works but um still but still provide a, a legal mechanism and legal framework for ensuring that original citation is maintained and all sorts of you know that there's still some degree of control um but yeah, I think uh, yeah, it's a, it's 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 so it's it's partly the reproducibility, but it's also not wanting to turn off serendipitous kind of rediscovery and recreation based on what's previously come before that that is powering a lot of the innovation that's happening in the in the modern world. Okay. Um, before we finish, any final words? Well, it might be worth saying that you know that often when you have when te- technological changes can change goods from being. Uh, excludable to non-excludable and vice versa so i mentioned you know the, the uh sort of having being 
the technology that we have for being able to to subscribe to particular mm. you know tv channels is a way of making what used to be non-excludable excludable and you can imagine technologies for other things so even you know as i mentioned street lights you can imagine having a subscription-based street light service where you know as you walk down the street the, the light switch on activated by an rfid chip or something um and and so there is an element to which we can choose the level of excludability and it, it may be that we you know we we we, we might we might want to make uh, it harder to share it. And certainly technology has enabled us to be, to enforce copyright. Now, so things like uh, the reverse image search facility on Google is really massive game changer for owners of photographs because they can find out where it's where other people have taken copies, you know, and mm -hmm. are using them. And of course, um, you know, in this particular case, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, it seems it, it, it's, there's, there's a few kind of, details about who owns it whether the macaque owns it and stuff but there are cases where people have taken uh photos they're professional photographers and those photos have just been reproduced in online marketing material by other companies you know with absolutely no attribution yeah. and and of course for those people um it, it does seem uh you know like a genuine like it's genuinely better for them to be able to, to track down who's doing that and to and to you know enforce it Mm -hmm. um but yeah i think i think it, it, it you know it, uh, i feel like technology will will gradually give us more and more options for doing that so at some point we'll face the question of how much ought these things to be owned you know i mean if you could apply ownership to to everything would we would we have to you know would 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 we end up having to pay a lot more to you know have a web website or to to consume information you know if it's possible to to have these subscription based uh, approaches you, you know they i mean when the when the when people first started to monetize the web uh there, were, there was a lot of talk of micro payments you know paying every time you read an article or whatever now um you know people have, ge have the web has generally been funded by advertising uh that may be something that would change you know paywalls i think are coming back in mm. um and of course the prevalence of ad blockers which we've covered before uh, slightly undermines the marketing angle. So I suppose what I'm saying is that this is not there's not something inherent. It's not an inherent. Uh, it's not it's not something that's inherent in the type of good. What it is is a technological choice that we can make. Peter, you look like yeah. I would be remiss if I didn't jump on the technology bandwagon and mention a few things which might got to be 30 interesting. seconds. So if we're just tracking uh, the provenance and the ownership of things, there there was various ways of encoding. The ownership information in the image, sort of as a watermark that can't be seen, so it can be detect, can be be detected. But also, uh, we've got to mention blockchain. Blockchain would be the perfect thing for a, dist a, a distributed ledger. Would be the perfect thing for uh, registering who owns what in a way that's immutable and is, is virtually impossible to to manipulate. Okay, um, just to finish things off, um, Nick, favorite primate. Um, I read a very interesting book about. A bit, yeah, I mean, do you mean? I mean, probably humans, realistically. But having said that, I did read an interesting book by Robert Sapolsky a few years ago about baboons and their society. And um, you know, it turns out there's. I know I don't know. It's probably true of lots of other primates, but baboons. Uh, they they have so many analogies with humans. It's 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 sort of touching and a bit sad, you know, that they have this very defined status hierarchy. And the and uh, what Sapolsky discovered was that the balloon the baboons at the bottom uh, all have lot uh, much higher stress hormones. So being being mm. low status, people used to assume that the high status baboons probably in order to maintain their their position had a very stressful job. You know, like we assume being the boss, being the CEO of a major corporation must be stressful. What he 
he discovered was that the poor old baboons at the very bottom are constantly getting beaten up by other baboons and can't get a mate are actually the ones with all the stress. So since then, I've I've had a lot of sympathy for baboons. Quite empathy as well. Um, Quite Peter. a degree of similarity in some <laughs> some areas as well. Yeah, Peter, favorite primate? Uh, orangutans. There's something very noble about them. They're they're, they're kind of um, extremely strong and big, um, and a ginger as well. And I'm, I'm a sort of closet ginger. Actually, so if you if you were a primate, I could see you as an orangutan. Yeah, slightly forlorn. But slightly of, forlorn, thanks. Yeah. Slightly forlorn, gingerish, sort of mooching around. Yeah, a, a do a Scott kind of orangutan, yeah. 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 Actually, my favourite primate is baboons, actually, all the more so given what you've just said now. Uh, I once saw a fight between um, a bunch of baboons and a bunch of people in Africa. As people. I was, yeah, as I was zooming down a road on a on a on a on a yeah, well, on both a, species are pretty vicious. Yeah, well, yeah, and I was on a bus sort of careering, careening down this road, and um, just it was this vi- little vignette that went racing by of a load of people with sticks chasing after baboons and the baboons chasing right back at them. Mm. Um, anyway, who won? In the, it's who knows. I, I mean, know. it's an eternal struggle, isn't it? The, the war twixt man and baboon, which you know <laughs> could be an endless one. Indeed, indeed. Um, I tell you, they should I make tell a you film I don't about like. it. It's chimpanzees. You don't they, like? They, yeah, I don't. Like everyone them. says they remind, says they they remind like me of all the worst aspects of humans. Now that's what everyone says. Yeah, no, they, they the way that they behave. You know, they're so vicious. They, 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 the the way that they hunt in packs and they, you know, pick off weak members of society and you know they they've got the, it's just like it's, and they pick it's, their noses it's the too way much like it's the way too much like humans when they're being badly behaved yeah the way they think. fling crap at each other god <laughs> it's just yeah exactly all right let's wrap up there uh you've been listening to the cognitive engineering podcast um i'm fraser mcgrew we've been here with nick Hare and peter coghill of aleph insights thank you and until next week bye-bye <laughs>